Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my trusty podcast co-host, Daniel Larison, as we gumshoe through the grimy streets of U.S. foreign policy and the military-industrial complex. The truth can be in the shadows or even in plain sight, and we promise to get to the rub of what Washington is doing, even when it's at odds with what it is saying it's doing every day here and abroad. In the next segment, we will be talking to another pair of co-hosts, Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman of the Conflict of Interest podcast, about the latest headlines. But first, let's talk about the swampiest story of the week and perhaps the swampiest senator in recent memory, Congressman Robert or Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey. The Senate Senator is facing multiple indictments for bribery, including exchanging support for U.S. weapons transfers in Egypt in return for gold and cash. He also allegedly secured a plush no-work job for his wife and ghost wrote a letter to fellow senators asking them to lift a hold on said weapons to Egypt. Now we have to emphasize that these are just allegations and Menendez will have his day in court, but this isn't the first time he's been accused of taking gifts in exchange for political favors. He avoided being convicted of corruption charges when a U.S. District, of court, US District court jury remained in deadlock over his case in 2017. Among the allegations in that case, the prosecution accused Menendez of pressuring U.S. officials to get the Dominican Republic government to honor a long dormant port security deal with a company owned by one of his biggest campaign donors, Dr. Solomon Melgen. He was later admonished by the Senate Ethics Committee, but that was it. So Dan, what do you think about this, particularly in uh, the context of the Senator's chairmanship, which he stood, you know, he's stepped down from, um, but, with that chairmanship brought him a lot of influence over major policy issues like giving billions of dollars in weapons deals to Egypt, one of the most repressive governments in the world. What do you make of this story? Uh, yeah, thanks, Kelly. So it's it's an interesting story because, of course, it, it shows that if the indictment is correct, if the, the charges are true, Menendez went back almost immediately to doing uh, corrupt dealing after he got off for the last charges. Uh, and so he, he clearly, he didn't learn anything from being admonished by the Senate. Uh, he, he was eager to get back into trading favors for gifts. Uh, and it seems like uh, his girlfriend and then wife uh, sort of helped him to facilitate some of this stuff and, and maybe got him in contact with some, some shady characters. Uh, well, one of the interesting things in the story, according to the indictment, uh, one of the Egyptian contact that his wife had, uh, this wild Hana, uh, referred to him in con- conversations with Egyptian officials as our man in the Senate. Uh, and so, so he was, I mean, if this is all true, he was perceived as having been sort of bought and paid for, uh, by, uh, Egypt, uh, which, which is remarkable because, of course, he, he poses as this great human rights advocate. Right. He, he wraps himself up in this mantle of, of standing up for human rights so often. Um, and so it's, uh, it's interesting to see that, that, the uh, veil torn away and to see some of the, the shady dealings that, that these people are engaged in. Uh, one of the, the curious things, or I guess the frustrating things about this is that it takes corruption this brazen and this sloppy for someone to actually be held accountable in Washington. There are all sorts of, uh, 
legally corrupt dealings with client governments that we have in the Middle East and elsewhere, uh, where where senators will use their influence to benefit these foreign governments, but but it's all sort of above board and done as a matter of policy, and so it's considered to be uh, okay. Uh, but it, but that is in itself, in some ways, worse. It's actually more corrupting of our our policy process. Uh, when you have all of this money legally sloshing around in D.C., buying influence, buying the the uh, the loyalty in some sense of some of these politicians, and so it's uh, it's an interesting cautionary tale uh, to the other politicians, uh, but it also shows how much they can get away with, you know, how far they can go before they actually cross a line that will get them into trouble with the law. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's pretty bad, Dan. And um, as I mentioned in my opening, that obviously this isn't the the, the first of wave of charges that have been launched against this particular senator. And I just saw a headline pass calling him the Pope of New Jersey. And so, I mean, this this guy has made a career on peddling his influence in office. Uh, for for gifts, luxury items, jobs, and um, and and many of those coming from campaign donors, but also as as we know the Egyptian government. But you know there might be a silver lining in this story. Uh, a number of his fellow senators have come out and called for him to resign, even though he said that he is going to run for re-election. And including Senator Cory Booker, a fellow uh, New Jerseyan. Um, so he, it doesn't look like he has support. He made a big case that somehow this was an anti-Latino smear against him because he had come from hum- humble beginnings and somehow um, the his political opponents just couldn't abide to see a Latino come from these humble beginnings and make something of himself. I think that turned off a lot of his fellow Democrats, including the Hispanic caucus, the Senate's Hispanic caucus. None of them, except for his son who was in office, came out to support that. And they certainly did not support his his reasoning uh, or his, his um, line of attack against his opponents being racially based. So I think he's in big trouble, but it just shows what sort of bubble he is in and which he used a press conference in which people, reporters had gathered there to hear his response to the indictments. And he used it not only to respond and defend himself, but also declare his candidacy for, for re-election. Uh, Democrat Andy Kim ha- has come out and said that he cannot abide uh, by someone under such a stinky cloud uh, running again for office and has put his his hat into the ring. Um, I think we're going to see some repercussions of this. I've already um, seen one headline uh, where um, uh, the the Turkish uh, President Erdogan has uh, actually greeted this news uh, with glee, saying that this might, by him stepping down as chairman of the Senate <laughs> Foreign Relations Commission uh, Committee, that Turkey can finally get those F-16s that they had been promised. And as we know, um, Senator Menendez had been one of the key voices in holding that transfer up. So I think there's going to be some geopolitical ramifications or ripples 
to uh, the Menendez uh, scandal. But I think, you know, here at Crashing the War Party, we should be relatively happy that uh, Menendez had been so bold and brazen in his swampy behavior that it finally caught up to him. It's unfortunate that it's taken this long because um, I, I don't think we've even touched the extent of the uh, murkiness and swampiness of his his tenure, but I think it, it it's a good day when um, fellow members of of Congress uh, actually say enough is enough, and we're not gonna we're not gonna protect this any longer. Yeah, definitely, and I think the the Democrats learned their lesson after the last time. Uh, they they mostly stayed on his side during his last trial, and then uh, with these new charges. Uh, they realize that there's no point in defending them anymore. It, it, it's it's all uh, a liability, and, and they just need to, to cut him loose, and, and that's good for them. And in terms of U.S. foreign policy, I think it's uh, it's a good outcome, uh, even though most of the, the bad things that he did while he was in office aren't the reasons that he's being removed or, or, or being charged. Uh, it, it, it does take one more hardliner off the board, uh, and, and particularly uh, destructive one, in my opinion, uh, this is a guy who who sealed openly for the Mujahideen Kalk, who was a, a big advocate of regime change in Venezuela, uh, one of the diehard supporters of uh, sanctions and embargo on Cuba, uh, and, and really the, a defender of some of the most extreme and bankrupt policies that we have. And so, uh, uh, good riddance uh, to bad rubbish. We'd like to welcome back to the show our friends Connor Freeman and Kyle Anzalone, the co-hosts of Conflicts of Interest. Connor is also a writer with the Libertarian Institute, and Kyle is a news editor there and at antiwar.com. He also writes for anti antiwar.com a bunch too. Welcome back, guys. Thank, Thank you, you for very much. Us. So um, I'm really happy that you're here again. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. I'm a big fan of your show. Um, I, I listen to it. I try to promote it. Um, and I'm so, I'm, you know, obviously you, you never run out of topics to talk about, uh, particularly if, over the last year with the war in Ukraine. You guys have been on top of it, and I really appreciate it. Um, so, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, sort of, Something that's been going on on the left that we've talked about on the show before and in my work, you know, at the Quincy Institute, which is a transpartisan institute, you know, we have a lot of friends on the left and the progressive movement that have split over the Ukraine issue. And I've heard and, and, and sort of witnessed on Twitter the same kind of split happening among libertarians. And I may be dating myself, but I, you know, I kind of started um, my career in Washington, at least writing about foreign policy and politics during the war on terror. And at the time, you know, folks like Ron Paul and the Libertarian uh, Party and Libertarians in general were very much against the war, against the Patriot Act, a bunch, you know, I, you know they had been firmly um, split from the Republican Party, at least on that issue. But I don't see the same thing happening over Ukraine. And I was just wondering if you guys had some thoughts or you could maybe explain for our more general audience, like 
who might not be aware that this, this sort of acrimony has, has, has emerged within libertarianism and why? Yeah. So, you know, when you look at the Libertarian Party, it's a pretty diverse group of people who have a lot of uh, differences for a lot of issues. Some of them are philosophical, like libertarian. Some libertarians believe, you know, abortion is, uh, you know, philosophically a libertarian issue and some are anti-abortion for the same reason. And then there's more practical issues like around immigration where it, you know, all philosophically libertarians believe in property rights and that's how you ham- handle immigration. But, you know, given uh, the massive, you know, U.S. you know empire that's constantly interfering in Latin America and creating so many migration issues, how do you handle that practically today? And so, um, there, there's so many divisions within the Libertarian Party that just naturally exist. But currently, if you look at the the Libertarian Party, uh, the chair is Angela McArdle, and she's really a libertarian and on the foreign policy issue uh, of the school and thought of Ron Paul and Scott Horton, who I think are really the the leaders of libertarian thought right now when it comes to foreign policy. And they're staunch anti-interventionists. They don't believe in sanctions. Uh, that you know they don't believe in intervention anywhere in the world, not sending weapons to Ukraine, not arming Taiwan. Uh, you know, we're opposed to all of this. We we trade with everyone, uh, but that's the limit of our interaction, not, not in this militarism. Uh, but you also have a, a very large statement of the Libertarian Party that is uh, philosophically far more like a Samantha Power or George W. Bush, who want to spread the ideas of libertarianism around the world and are willing to do it with the American military. Now, you know, they wouldn't say that option first, but much like the Hots in D.C., they would say, oh, you know, sanctioning Iran or our Cuba, our Venezuela, are things we have to do uh, to try to help the people in those countries. And then you have people who, you know, kind of rationalize in their mind. They say, uh, you know, we don't want to go to war around the world, but the U.S. has created so many problems. And, you know, they've upset the Iranians so much. And, you know, they've created this vulnerability for the Israelis. And so they, you know, convince themselves that we have to either intervene in, uh, say, the Middle East to support Israel and maintain sanctions against Iran, or we have to arm Taiwan because those are a free people who are, you know, uniquely about to be uh, severely oppressed or because of the uh, Chinese genocide of the Uyghurs. We have to maintain sanctions there. Uh, but right now, again, the party is really led by the, the anti-interventionists. And we've seen that if you look follow the Libertarian Party on Twitter, they're hardcore against all the interventions going on right now. And that's been wonderful to see. And also they organized uh, the end the damn wars rally uh, along with leftist organizations and, you know, brought in uh, Scott Horton and Matthew Ho and Ron Paul and Tulsi Gabbard to all speak together and demand an end to all the interventions going on. And, and so, the, you know, the, it's going in the right direction from yeah. my perspective, at least. Yeah, I was at uh, the Ron Paul Institute's um, conference in D.C. just short of a month ago. And it was, I was very heartened to see folks like, you know, Max Blumenthal and Doug McGregor and others um, talking about Ukraine. And, and just, it was, you know, it was a spirited conversation, uh, but all in the inter- non-interventionist vein. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like uh, uh, Dan McAdams is uh, really steering that ship in the right direction. And uh, as as is Dr. Paul himself, who's out there and, you know, doing they're doing their show every day. And um, yeah, so uh, 
Let me, you know, let me ask you a, a question in terms of, of Ukraine. It does seem that um, that has been very predominant in your coverage. Can you talk a little bit? Let's see. Um, there's a ton going on right now. Talk a little bit about the Ukraine aid debate. And um, right now, the Senate is about to, I guess they've, they're already debating or they voted. It'll depend on when the show is actually published on Friday, a continuing resolution to stop the, the closing of the government that includes $6 billion in Ukraine aid. Are you surprised that there is um, a growing pushback or backlash on the Republican side against that aid. And how far do you think that backlash will go? I know that Rand Paul has been very vocal about it. Um, what are you hearing and what are your thoughts about like how much of, um, you know, where that debate might be going in Washington? Uh, I mean, I think if you look at the polling now, they say like 71% of Republicans are against further aid. So that has to move some of, of the members of Congress. And it has started to, I think there's a letter with 28 Republicans saying that they're not going to support any more aid. And, and so that is kind of moving in the right direction. But there still is an overwhelming number of, you know, congressmen and women on both sides of the aisle that will support it. And so uh, it seems like the latest is that they're trying to piecemeal it a little bit and do $6 billion of aid in yeah. the Senate. And and so, you know, they create all these crises around the budget every year. They take, what, the month of August off, and then in September they come back and panic that they don't have a budget uh, for the end of the month and pass continuing resolutions. And and so my guess is that's kind of what's going to go on here is they're going to just exploit the crisis. It is heartening to see the um, the lack of political will, at least to pass a massive aid package as quickly as they had in the past, I mean, just before Biden requested that $24 billion in additional uh, aid, mostly military aid, uh, there was that poll that came out from CNN, the one that Kyle was referring to earlier, that showed that not just 71% of Republicans are against sending another dime to Kiev, but 55% of the population is overall. And I think that's uh, ex- very notable. And also the fact that when Zelensky travel, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine traveled to the United States, recently traveled to Washington, he did not speak, he did not give a live address to Congress. And, uh, they, because they know it's very untenable right now. It's not a popular war. Uh, the American people know that it's failing. I mean, there's often an instinct among non-interventionists to celebrate, uh, to sort of get the cart before the horse and think that the Republicans are going to be much better on some of these issues than they have, than they ultimately are in many cases, especially when it comes to, you know, so overall, they'll say that they learned their lessons from the endless wars in the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan, but they're just ready to move on to China, which, you know, could go nuclear and, in, in in, you know, very quickly. And, and that's actually the plan for theirs to go into a direct war with China as opposed to a proxy war with Russia. But they are thankfully turning against, especially on the constituents level, against this proxy war with Russia. Um, and yet it's uh, funny to see the way that they're trying to sell it now is by leaning on the most hawkish rhetoric of the administration, at least when you see like hawkish Republicans try to sell it to their own voters. I mean, you can see it in that Bill Crystal ad that came out recently or the words of uh, Lindsey Graham, which is they always go, we're only spending 5% of the defense budget of the United States and we've destroyed half of Russia's military. I mean, and we're not sending, we're only sending weapons from our own stocks. We're not sending troops. So it's such a great 
bang for your buck, like uh, Richard Blumenthal said, the hawkish Democrat. But, I mean, we know from General uh, Christopher Cavoli, the head of Eurocom, he's told Congress in April that Russia's ground forces are um, significantly larger now than before the war started, and that the Air Force has not really been damaged and the Navy has lost about one ship. And, uh, and so the, I mean, they're just, and we know that there, there was that piece in the New York Times recently that shows that Russia's ammunition capacity has doubled and that it'll take years for the NATO alliance to catch up, um, their, their, their capacity to build up more arms and, and make more ammo. Uh, so, I mean, the rhetoric is just all falling apart. And I think as we get closer to the election, it's going to be, um, much more permissible for Republicans to be more staunchly opposed. Uh, to the proxy war, and hopefully that trend continues. Well, and it, and it may, guys. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's good to have you back. Uh, one of the the new weapon systems that has been uh, sought after by the Ukrainians for some time uh, these army tactical missile systems that are finally being uh, sent uh, by an administration, as they've done with pretty much every weapons shipment, has has delayed a little bit, but then ultimately given in and, and agreed to send them. And uh, as we saw in reporting this week, uh, what's uh, particularly troubling about this weapons shipment, uh, in, in my view, is that they're going to be tipped with cluster munitions. And so th- this is this seems to to add to the the original error that Biden made in sending cluster munitions to the Ukrainians uh, earlier this year, uh, because now he's putting them. He's going to send them on missiles that can be launched into Russia. So these are going to be uh, long range weapons that will use cluster munitions on Russian territory, and so presumably will also uh, end up killing Russian civilians down the line. Uh, One of the defenses that the administration made when they sent cluster munitions at the first, in in the first place, is, oh, well, this is, this is Ukrainian territory. The Ukrainians are weighing the, the difficulty of doing this, and they're going to keep track of all of the places that they use these weapons and so on. And we found out since then that they're not really doing that. Uh, but how, how concerned are you uh, that this will uh, exacerbate the civilian suffering from the war? Uh, and also, how concerned are you that this is going to lead to further escalation down the line? Uh, either one of you can take it. Well, it, it's, I mean, it's part and parcel of this strategy that Ukraine is, uh, excuse me, that Kiev is undertaken uh, during its failing counteroffensive, which is to increase attacks in Crimea and in Russia and the Russian mainland. And we've been seeing this throughout much of this year, uh, including attacks by neo-Nazi militias uh, tied to Ukrainian military intelligence, like the Russian Volunteer Corps, for example, uh, going into places like Belgorod and attacking civilians. And the rationale for that is to bring the war to the civilian population so that they know that you know, it's supposed to unsettle them and to increase pressure on Moscow to show the civilians of Russia that they can't, you know, be, they're not protected from the war. Uh, is So long as it's ongoing, they are vulnerable to, uh, to these kinds of attacks. And that's a big part of what the drone attacks in Moscow are all about, which also attacks civilian areas. And so, I mean, it's, it, the thing is, is, the, the argument is that the we don't have enough of the uh, attackums with the unitary warhead uh, in our stocks, and if we 
start to send those, it's going to mean that the United States will be less prepared for other conflicts and wars that it may want to fight in the interim. So we have quite a few of these. With the, we're in much more plentiful supply, these cluster-armed attackums, uh, and they're no longer a frontline U.S. weapon. So it makes total sense to send them to Kiev, which is kind of what they were saying as well about the cluster bombs back in July, which is that we don't have enough 155-millimeter artillery shells to send anymore. We're going to send these or 155 millimeter cluster bombs. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is not a, this, you know, Zelensky, we know from the Discord leaks, wanted to hit, you know, major targets behind Russian lines with these long range missiles. That's what he was really, uh, as they said, pining for in these leaked documents. Uh, but these are anti-personnel weapons. So to, to your point, Dan, I mean, they're just going to be used to likely just to kill civilians and and to you know climb us up further on this escalation ladder leading closer to nuclear war and this has been a major problem since at least december with the drone attacks on the angles uh, air force base um hundreds of miles inside russian territory that where nuclear or strategic bombers are stored and uh the argument in the Times at the time from these unnamed Pentagon sources was, well, we tacitly endorse these attacks because, for one thing, Putin has not attacked a NATO state yet, and he hasn't used tactical nuclear weapons. So it appears that this red line is not really so much a red line because we've crossed it without the consequences that we see as being uh, you know, we're not deterred at this point. I mean, they, even the, the argument was that he's, you know, when we started, you know, greenlighting attacks on, say, the Kerch Bridge, uh, you know, the bridge that connects the Crimean Peninsula to the Russian mainland, the argument is, well, he's only launching these attacks on infrastructure, civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. Not in NATO state, in a, you know, fellow NATO members. So we can keep going with this policy and continue escalating. And at this point, the administration seems not concerned at all about attacks inside Russian territory. Blinken was, uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was asked by ABC News recently, well, what if they use the attackums, uh, for attacks deep inside the Russian mainland? And Blinken said, as far as targeting decisions go, it's their decision, not ours. And so it's this very strange way of saying, yeah, they can't do it without our intelligence, which is the open secret everybody's aware of. There was just another report in The Economist about this, about all the drone strikes in Russia. Uh, but, you know, so, but, but it's not really our decision. We're, it's, we're dissolving our responsibility. It's, it's Ukraine's war, not ours, when it's, of course, is, you know, Washington's war. Well, let me ask you, I, I just want to, the two finger on that, just about the, uh, the attackums, because I've been told that they, that, that what Kiev really wanted was the, the attackums that were able to deploy unitary, um, missile or, or warheads, because those would actually be able to wipe out ships, buildings, railways, you know, heavy, hardened targets, um, and I don't know what the decision-making process is, but it sounds like we're giving them the cluster munitions because, like you said, we had more of those hanging around. And then we'd rather have the, the attackums for ourselves that have deploy the unitary warheads. Um, what kind of signal might that be sending, Kyle, to to Zelensky? Like, we'll give you... We'll, we'll, we'll give you something, but we're not going to actually give you the weapons that would actually be a game changer in this regard. Are, are we sending the signal that we, we might be a little nervous about um, the red line or is it just that, you know, our stockpiles are, are depleting and, and, and at some point we're going to have to turn the spigot off? 
Yeah, you, you know, the Pentagon has been pretty clear that they have certain red line numbers of weapons and they don't disclose what they are, where, you know, all the 155 millimeter rounds or the attackums are stored and all that kind of stuff. We all know those details, but, you know, they've been clear that they've approached and got to some of those red line numbers for some of these weapon systems. And so, uh, I think a part of it is they need to keep sending Ukraine different weapon systems and, you know, kind of like a drug addict. If you give them a stronger and stronger drug, it kind of, you know, makes sure they keep fighting and keep going. And so I think that's why, you know, they also had a pledge that have since teens, even though American military officials are saying they won't be effective on the battlefield until 2027 because you need to, you know, be able to train multiple pilots and also all the maintenance and, and other equipment that you really have to be able to yeah, used to logistically support those systems all have to be in place and all those people have to be trained. And that's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but still saying that FSIDS teams are coming is something that will keep Zelensky uh, making sure that, you know, his forces keep keep pushing the war forward. And so I think that's a big part of it. And also, you, you know, they have been pretty clear that this war is meant to benefit the American military industrial complex. And, you know, they celebrate that what they say, like 61% of the money is really just going back into the military industrial complex and we're making weapons and then we're shipping them our basically surplus weapons it almost is uh kind of like what they did during the war on terror with the surplus weapons to the uh police force in america this time they're just sending the edster stuff uh over to ukraine and now uh, turning to the the other story of the week uh, we have this uh not maybe not shocking but uh, a very interesting indictment of bob menendez uh, who was uh, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, had to step down because of that uh, being replaced by Ben Cardin, at least temporarily. Uh, what do you guys think? That, will there be any effects on uh, any major foreign policy debates because Menendez is, has been taken out of play uh, to some extent and may end up being uh, run out of office, uh, whether he resigns or gets voted out? Uh, do you see that having a, a big effect, or was it... Uh, uh, more limited. I guess it, you know, it remains to be seen as far as who replaces Menendez and, and how that might change U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but the, I guess the most immediate thing I, I would think we would see an impact on is the F-16 sale to Turkey because Menendez uh, is reported to have been holding it, that up and that'll have some major consequences because uh, Turkey is saying that they're not going to improve Sweden's NATO membership until they get approval of that F-16 sale. So uh, in some strange way, you know, removing a hawk from the Senate is going to facilitate a, a new NATO member. Um, it's, it's this cruel world we live in where we really can't even celebrate a hawk like Menendez going down fully. Uh, but but then also, I think, you know, military aid to Egypt may be impacted. It seemed like, you know, he was having a pretty significant impact on uh, making sure Egypt got at least over a billion dollars in military aid a year. And certainly, uh, you know, as head of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee was able to uh, steer debate on, you know, what is even up for debate and, and what could be discussed in future funding bills. And so, uh, you, you know, maybe we see in, in the longer term aid to Egypt curtailed, although, I mean, it is a pretty consensus Washington policy. Trump called Sisi his favorite, uh, favorite dictator. And so, you know, it's no open secret that that Israel is a very, or Egypt, excuse me, is a very oppressive state, and um, that 
the U.S. continues to support it anyway, even though the the idea that the U.S. has to like pay a bribe to Cairo not to attack Tel Aviv has to be absolutely laughable now. Uh, which when I was uh, like 10 years ago was when I was taught about the reason we gave Israel uh, Egypt aid in the first place, it was basically a bribe not to attack Israel. Right. Yeah. No, that, that's become a, a pretty outdated arrangement. Uh, no, no one's worried about that scenario anymore. Uh, well, one of the areas where I'm, I'm hopeful that Menendez's uh, ouster or, or downfall may, may be beneficial is in improving our approach towards Venezuela and Cuba. Of course, he's been one of the, the big obstacles to that, and, and he's been one of the big movers in favor of uh, tightening uh, sanctions and economic warfare against these states uh, during his career. Uh, and he's, he's been one of the sort of the thorns in Biden's side uh, to, the, to the extent that the administration is even hinting at changing those policies for the better. They've had to keep their eye on Menendez and, and be worried about how he would react to it. Uh, do you think that if he's out of the picture, that frees them up to, to do a little bit more in improving those policies? Uh, as far as uh, lifting sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba with, with Menendez out? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's uh, very strong support. I mean, I was just thinking about uh, the fact that, you know, with him gone, he and Lindsey Graham had bylined this uh, very radical policy, the Taiwan Policy Act, uh, which uh, did not get passed, but ma major parts of it made it into the most recent NDAA, which was signed by Biden. Uh, so, you know, it included they what they took from it was this unprecedented military aid billions that have been committed. It's kind of caught up in appropriations right now with the State Department. But we're already seeing uh, presidential drawdown authority weapons shipments going to Taipei. Uh, so, I mean, but, you know, some of the things that Graham and Menendez wanted, which were upgrading Taiwan's status with all these different international institu uh, institutions, um, making Taiwan officially a major non-NATO ally, um, some of these did not get – these were not included in the NDAA. Uh, but it's it's unfortunate that, you know, as bad as Menendez and Graham and Tom Cotton and Hawks like these are, they're – policies and this sort of neoconservative ideology that supports sanction, you know, perpetual economic warfare with Iran or with Venezuela, where we've seen tens of thousands of people died uh, just during the Trump administration because they were deprived of vital medicines because of the sanctions. Uh, these policies are not opposed by any significant faction uh, in the Congress that I'm aware of. I mean, one of the biggest ironies to me of the uh, fate of the Iran deal is the fact that at least since Biden came into office, the most, I mean, the most opposition the administration has received from what I can see, like when Robert Malley used to speak to uh, the Senate about this before he was removed from his post, um, was from Rand Paul. It wasn't from any Democrats. Right. And this is you know, this is Barack Obama's greatest achievement, apart from somewhat liberal uh, liberalizing relations with uh, Cuba. Um, but of course, there's no loyalty to that deal with, uh, as far as Democrats are concerned. There's, you know, vastly more uh, loyalty to the Israel lobby and the, uh, you know, the 
the the you know the, the warfare state that needs Iran really as a linchpin of all of our different partnerships and alliances in the Middle East. Uh, and it's essentially, I mean, the Abraham Accords caucus, you have this bicameral bipartisan movement in the legislature that wants to just expand, the, you know, this, uh, the Abraham Accords to Saudi Arabia. And you hear from presidential candidates, they want to bring in Indonesia and Qatar and Oman. And none of this is possible without having these perpetual enemies. And Iran is, you know, a functioning in this as they build this sort of uh, burgeoning alliance in that region, you know, and this is a big part of the Saudi normalization deal. Um, they need Iran to function essentially as the way Russia does with NATO expansion. Is that you need an enemy to justify all this? And so, unfortunately, I just don't see uh, there being much political will. I mean, the Democrats have not been there. Been there's been some, um, I believe, House members who have expressed support for lifting sanctions on uh, Cuba. Uh, but nothing significant, unfortunately. Um, so as bad as Menendez is, I mean, I think the fact that there's not enough um, opposition to his pol- the policies that he's been spearheading all these years in Congress says is even worse, uh, I guess, than, than, you know, than guys like Graham and, and Menendez who are the, you know, the most hawkish members of the Congress, but really they just shift the Overton window and over the years – Policies that initially maybe seemed radical become just completely normalized by the rest of their uh, colleagues. I think you're totally right, Connor. This isn't about one person, even though it's nice to take this one person off the off the uh, the playing field, even if it's just a leadership position. I don't know if he'll eventually be forced to resign, but this really is about the war party, and that war party has plenty of people who will replace a Senator Menendez or anybody else that that shifts off that playing field. Um, I know we only got a few minutes left, but I'd really love to talk about a little bit of presidential politics here. I know when this show is published on Friday, it'll already be uh, the morning after the Republican debate uh, tonight, uh, the 27th. and I'm looking at I'm looking at all your faces. We're a bunch of independents, whether we you know skew one way or another, but I, we're not partisans. So this is an interesting question. Is there anybody on the Republican side right now that you feel um, will uh, be less destructive <laughs> to foreign policy if if uh, elected president? Um, I don't have much faith in that. Um, but are and any thoughts in general on the Republican field of candidates and how re, how foreign policy might be playing into their campaigns? So I, I guess as far as like I actually really support or anything, I, I don't think so. Just as compared to Biden in the status quo, yeah. I mean it's almost unbelievable but just returning to the trump policy at least he believed in some diplomacy with some nations uh you know at least we would talk to north korea or or something you know what i mean so that would be a slight improvement <laughs> and also doing anything to unwind the war in ukraine would be better but overall probably the best on foreign policy would be vivek even though you know he really wants to reor- reorient towards war with China, which is extremely problematic, and he wants to wage a drone war in Mexico, which is unbelievably terrible and a really, really bad idea. 
Uh, but maybe that wouldn't actually I, I have some optimism that the American people might actually get upset about fighting a war with the country next door. And I don't think the Mexican government will go about it at all. And so I think this is like just something that he's like kind of latched on to in his saying, but really doesn't have any chance in Washington and of actually moving through. Um, but the war with China stuff is really problematic on, on VVET's end. And so uh, as much as like some of the rhetoric on the, the war on terror stuff and uh, the Ukraine stuff is good and would certainly be an improvement over the status quo, any administration that was willing to like have an actual State Department that engaged in diplomacy with anyone would be fantastic. Right. Uh, the Biden administration cannot go to China and the the diplomats cannot not run their mouths and complain about the Chinese government there. You know, you're a diplomat is supposed to like talk about and build like you know forward on issues, and they just constantly slam the Chinese government over issues they know are red lines for Beijing. It, it's so unnecessary, and so uh, almost anything would be an improvement. Uh, Nikki Haley would probably be worse, and a, a couple <laughs> of the other big hots. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Connor has any better ideas on what we could do about this uh, Republican field. Well, what's really scary about Vivek is uh, his policy on China is is essentially that he he's waiting for supply chains to diversify enough so that we're no longer as dependent on type, uh, Taiwan for, for semiconductors and advanced chips. And he says that in the interim, he will go to hot war, direct war with China. <laughs> and 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 he's but he says, but once that happens, he'll sort of relax uh the policy from strategic clarity back to to strategic ambiguity. Which so what's really phenomenal, I mean insane about that is that's actually to the left of the consensus, which is that we are going to war with China. I mean, and not on any like it's 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 a foregone conclusion. It's this slow motion train wreck that we're all watching uh, as anybody who pays attention to U.S. foreign policy or the blob. You know, every the whole national security state and every branch of the military is is moving in this direction and openly stating it. And as far as the chips thing goes, we know from a few different sources, including Trump's former national security advisor, uh, Robert O'Brien and uh, uh the U.S. Army War College wrote up a paper about this in 2021, and Seth Moulton got into some hot water with the Taiwanese uh, Defense Ministry earlier this year for saying this. The U.S. plan is to blow up the chip factories on day one in Taiwan to make you know the to make it just that much more costly for the Chinese to actually take the island. And our policy of continually upgrading diplomatic and military ties, we have. 200 troops at least deployed to the island right now, training local forces for war with the mainland. And we're constantly expanding our bases in the, in the Asia Pacific and in now, in, um, especially among the Pacific Island nations and, uh, you know, expanding in the Philippines. And, you know, the argument from, you know, the uh, head of Pacific Air Force is Ken Wilspatch is that, well, we're drawing fire in all these different directions when the war starts to make it that much more difficult, uh, for the Chinese. Um, and, it's just insane to see this trajectory we're on, but there's no Republican that actually opposes any of that. No. Uh, and the Biden administration has taken things way further than Trump uh, or Obama did uh, as far as uh, this buildup for war with China. The only candidate in this entire race who opposes it is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who has come out and said things that are about as good as anybody except Ron Paul has said on this topic. Um, but as far as the Republican field, Kelly, I know you wrote that piece after that 
previous debate on Fox News, the consensus is let's go to war with Mexico and China among yeah. all of us. They, they have to prove they can still look tough on something. So they split on, on Ukraine, but then like it's just to show their bona fides as tough talking, peace through strength. They say, well, let's go to war with Mexico. Um, and then it's a twofer because it's a war with Mexico to get at China's trafficking fentanyl and you know so I, I get it on a political level but it's it's very dispiriting <laughs> to see it in action um we got to let you go but can you guys um promise to come back on the show i'd love to to catch up again on the headlines but also uh we'll be watching this uh campaign um environment on the foreign policy tip as it unfolds uh, and it's getting increasingly um, contentious. We'd love to, to talk about it more. Absolutely. Anytime. Right. Anytime. Okay. Thank you. Right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.